0: The scripture reading for today comes from Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 34. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and move and have our being. Oh, I missed it. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman called Damaris, and others with them. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. You can be seated, and good morning. Welcome again to New Life Fremont. My name is Kevin, if I haven't had a chance to meet any of you yet. We are continuing our sermon series through the book of Acts called The World Turn Upside Down. Everywhere that the gospel of Jesus Christ goes, it turns things upside down. And today we're going to be looking at Paul proclaiming the gospel to the people of Athens. And there's a a lot we can learn from Paul in Athens, especially as it relates to the subject of evangelism or witnessing or sharing the gospel with the people we live among. Things like the posture that we might take toward those we hope to share the gospel with, or the methods we might use in hopes of persuading them. There's a lot that we can learn from Paul in Athens. And so we're going to dive a bit deeper into Acts 17, and Paul speaking to the people of Athens. And as we do, we'll have three points. Number one, in the marketplace. Number two, the unknown God. And number three, the resurrection. And so let's begin with our first point in the marketplace. In our passage, Paul's spirit is provoked because of what he sees in the city of Athens. Verse 16 says that his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Now, that word provoked has a connotation of anger to it, You know, it's used elsewhere in scripture of God's anger toward idolatry. And so Paul is very disturbed by what he sees in Athens. There's all these idols everywhere. You know, apparently the people of Athens had many different idols, counterfeit gods, these man-made objects that they worshipped. You know, maybe a god for wealth, a god for offspring, a god for all different sorts of things. And Paul sees this, and it provokes him. It makes him almost like sick to his stomach, to see it. But notice what Paul does not do. You know, when we think of being provoked, we might think of lashing out or castigating someone. You know, we might use being provoked as an excuse for our angry outbursts, but he provoked me. But that's not what happens here. Paul is provoked, but not to lash out or explode in anger. Instead, Being provoked actually leads him to reason with people, to talk to them. Verse 17 says, So he reasoned in the synagogue with Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Paul reasons with people. He doesn't lash out at the people of Athens. He reasons with them. You know, first in the synagogues with the Jews and devout persons, but then in the marketplace with Gentiles, which is what our passage actually focuses on, Paul reasoning with people in the marketplace. Now, when we hear that term, the marketplace, we might think of the workplace, or we might think of something like a farmer's market, lots of tables and vendors trying to sell stuff. There might be some of that going on, but the marketplace in Athens was really more of a a public square, a place for public discourse. You know, it's like the city center where everyone hangs out and talks and learns. You know, we might use a term like the marketplace of ideas to refer to online discourse or newspaper opinion columns. Well, in the first century in Athens, the marketplace of ideas was a literal place a place where people physically gathered for ideas to be exchanged. The way our passage puts it in in verse 21 is this. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So that's what happened in the marketplace. People would gather and tell and hear new things. And so that's where Paul goes to the marketplace, to reason, to dialogue, to debate. You know, he's not standing on corners shouting about Jesus and the resurrection to people who are ignoring him. He's engaging in dialogue with people. The word that's translated reasoned actually implies the use of the Socratic method where you interrogate hypotheses and eliminate them as the interrogation leads them to conflict or contradict themselves. You know, it's a purposeful and methodical of reasoning. And if Paul is using the Socratic method in the marketplace, it means he's not only talking, he's listening. If he wants to interrogate the hypotheses and philosophies of the others in the marketplace, he has to listen to them first. He has to show them some respect. He has to understand their point of view. Although it doesn't seem like Paul was always treated with respect in the marketplace. Uh, Verse 18, some call him a babbler. Some said, what is this babbler wish to say? Which is an insult. That's not respectful. That's not a nice thing to say to Paul. But there are others there who are interested in what Paul has to say. Verses 19 through 20. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, what you're saying is strange, Paul, but we might be interested in hearing more. It's strange, but why don't you come to the Areopagus and say more? And we'll get to what Paul says at the Areopagus in the next point, but let's pause for a moment. What can we learn or take away from Paul's engagement in the marketplace? Well, first, we should ask ourselves, are our hearts provoked by idolatry that we see around us? Are our, are our hearts provoked by our own idolatry. You know, obviously, idolatry today tends to be sort of hidden from us. We're far less likely to see altars to mysterious gods represented by carved or graven images, but our surrounding culture is just as idolatrous. It's very worshipful of false gods. Are you provoked by that? Do you even care? All these people around us worship false gods, which means, first of all, The living and true God is not getting the worship that he is due. And second, as I've mentioned before, if you worship a false god, you ultimately end up sacrificing yourself on its altar. Your neighbors, the people around you who don't know Christ, they're ultimately sacrificing themselves before cruel and torturous masters based on false premises made by their idols. Are you provoked by that? Does it make you a little sick to your stomach? we love God and love others, there should be some provoking within us by seeing a world full of idols, a world full of people worshiping false gods. Now, second, if you are provoked by that, how do you respond? What is your posture toward those who have provoked you? Because it would be easy to overreact or to take that provocation and unload it in unloving ways— you know we may find ourselves lashing out at the culture around us or hating our neighbors and how they live you know we may think that we should just remove ourselves completely from the surrounding culture go live in isolation somewhere where there's less idol worship but i think that provocation should lead to something else within us you know in the book of jonah in chapter 4 of Jonah. Uh, Jonah is so mad that God has been patient with this evil city of Nineveh. And do you remember what God says to Jonah when Jonah is so mad? God says this to Jonah Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 people who don't know their right hand from their left? Should I not pity them, Jonah? They don't know their right hand from their left. Of course they're wicked and worshiping false gods. They don't know better. They don't know their right hand from their left. Or take Jesus in Matthew 9. Jesus is making his way through all these cities and villages, teaching in the synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of heaven to people and healing. And uh, as he sees crowds gathering, Matthew, who wrote the gospel, says this, Jesus had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. When we're provoked by the unbelieving world around us that does wicked things and worships false gods, I think where the Holy Spirit wants to lead us is very similar to Jonah 4 and Matthew 9. You know, they don't know their right hand from their left. They're harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. You know, that's how Jesus viewed you when you were lost. That's how God treated you. And what right do we have to be harsher with the world around us than Jesus was with us? Third, when Paul is provoked, unlike last week where he gets annoyed with the demon-possessed girl, I think here he engages with the marketplace in a more loving way. He engages in dialogue and debate, the Socratic method which means that he listened charitably. And this is a valuable skill for engaging with the world around us, learning how to be good listeners, learning to understand the values and beliefs of someone who believes differently than us. Because how could you ever hope to be persuasive if you engage or dialogue or debate if you don't understand the point of view of the person you're talking to? You know, I think the category that comes up here is uh, the category of a straw man, you know, a straw man is when you're engaging when some, with someone or arguing or debating. If you present a poor version of their point of view and then knock it down, that's a straw man argument. It's weak and light and easy to knock over. But when we do engagement and dialogue and debate, what we should think of is the category of a steel man, Not a straw man, but a steel man. A steel man is the best version of the other person's point of view or argument. It's the strongest argument for their perspective. And so when we engage or dialogue or debate, it ought to be with steel man arguments, not straw man arguments. And one last thing before we move on to the next point. If you engage in the marketplace of ideas, if you bring Christianity, Jesus, the gospel into the marketplace you should be prepared. People will think you are weird because Christianity is strange. In verse 21, the people say to Paul, you bring some strange things to our ears. And you know, this is helpful for all of us and our entire living out of the faith, but especially when we engage in the marketplace. If you're a Christian and say Christian things and do Christian things, other people will think that you are weird. You have to just accept that. Christians are weird. We're strange. If your life goal is to never come across as weird or strange, but to perfectly blend in and never rock the boat at all, then Christianity is not going to be the religion for you because it's strange. You know, it's weird that we're all here right now and not at brunch or sleeping in or running errands before the week starts. You know, it's strange that later on we're going to eat some bread and drink some wine and say it's the flesh and blood of some guy who we think 2,000 years ago died and then rose from the dead and in the future will raise us from the dead too. That's a strange thing to believe, but we believe it. And so own it. This is strange. We are strange. You are strange. And you bring a strange message to an unbelieving world around you. But do you know what another word for strange is? Holy. To be holy is to be set apart That's not that different than being strange, right? When you're strange, you're kind of set apart. But when you're holy, you're also set apart. God has called us to be holy. God has called us to be strange in this world. The gospel that we share will be strange to the ears of this world. Be prepared for that. All right, that's Paul in the marketplace. He was provoked but didn't lash out. Instead, he engaged, he reasoned. Some disrespected him, some thought he was strange, some wanted to hear more of what he had to say, and that takes us to our second point, the unknown God. So in our passage, uh, as we continue on, Paul is invited to the Areopagus to say more about this new teaching that he was presenting to them. You know, it was strange to their ears, but they wanted to hear more, and so he goes to the Areopagus. He stands in the midst of everyone and begins like this, starting in the middle of verse 22 through the middle of 23. Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are religious, for I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. And so Paul begins very politely, very winsomely. He establishes some common ground, really. Hey, as I was walking around, I saw all these objects of worship. We're not so different, you know. You worship and I worship Also, you're religious, and I'm religious also. We have some shared common ground. But then he turns a bit of a corner, which is expected. He's not there to just establish common ground and talk about what they can agree on. It's a great starting point, but it's just a starting point. And so Paul turns a corner. He carries on from the middle of verse 23. I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. This is a really brilliant move by Paul. You know, one of the altars he noticed said that it was an altar to an unknown God. And Paul said, perfect. Even they sense that there's a God out there that exists, but that they don't know. He's unknown to them. I'm going to build upon that. And so he says to them, what you worship as unknown, I have news for you. I know him. Let me tell you about this unknown God. And so he continues in verses 24 and 25, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Paul saying, You build all these altars and temples and serve all these carved engraved idols. But the God I know, he doesn't need any of that. He made the world and everything in it. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. And so he isn't confined inside of a man-made temple. And he isn't even really served by humans because he doesn't need to be served. He doesn't need anything. He is actually the one who gives all people life and breath and everything. He serves us. We're skipping down to verse 29. Paul wraps up this critique of idols. He says, We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. And this is good arguing against idol worship. Paul's saying if humans make something out of gold or silver or stone, if they make a carved idol, that thing can't be God because a human made it. God makes us. We don't make God, A God made by humans can't be a God at all. A temple made by human hands can't contain God at all. A God that needs our service and sacrifices isn't a God at all because God does not need anything. Everything needs God. Everyone needs God. But God does not need us or anything. So let me tell you about the true God. The God you know in the deepest recesses of your soul is out there. The God that you think is unknown, he is actually known. He is knowable, and he wants you to know him. So Paul continues, verse 26 through the middle of 27. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. This God has been sovereign over all of history, making one man and from him all humans, all nations. And he determined years of their existences and their borders. And all of it was so that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Still in verse 27 through 28. Yet he is actually not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. And even as some of your own poets have said, For we are indeed his offspring. This is again a brilliant move by Paul. He quotes two of their poets, two of their culture makers, two of their own philosophers, peoples whose writings have been influential and who people generally put some stock in. And so Paul quotes them and says, Look, even these guys that you know and trust have said similar things about God in him we live and move and have our being, for we are indeed his offspring. You say that there's an unknown God, but deep down you actually know some things about him. Your poets have been saying it for centuries. So Paul wraps up in verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent God lets you go along your own way, ignoring him for a time, saying that he was unknowable, setting up all these idols. But those days are over. You know that there's a God deep down, and I'm here to tell you about him. And you need to repent and believe. He's making himself known to you this very day, so repent of your ignorance. Know him. You can know the unknown God. And so how do they respond? get to that in the next point. Before we get there, how should we respond? You know, what can we take away from Paul's speech at the Areopagus about the unknown, but really the known God? Well, first, we should call out the good in people's lives, especially our unbelieving friends. They're made in the image of God. They're recipients of God's common grace There is good that can be pointed out in them. There's common ground we can build with them. You know, Philippians 4.8 says, Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about those things. Think about those things in your unbelieving friends. You know, Paul, even though he is provoked and perplexed inside, is able to walk through a city of idols and still manage to say, I can see you're very religious. I can see that you worship. I can see that you sense there's a God out there that you don't know yet. That's good. And it is. It is truly good. It doesn't save them, but it is good. And it can be pointed out. And so we can call out the good in people's lives, even those who don't believe. Second, meet people where they're at, not where you are, not where you wished that they were. Meet them where they're really at. You know, notice that Paul doesn't quote the Old Testament at all in this speech to the people in Athens. That's because that's not where they're at. It wouldn't be persuasive to them. In previous speeches to Jews, Peter and Paul quote the Old Testament a lot because that's where they're at. The Old Testament was authoritative and persuasive to them, but not here. And so who does Paul quote instead? He quotes their poets, their philosophers. He meets them where they're at. And so meet people that you know where they're at. Then finally, everybody worships. You worship Everybody you know worships. Believer and non-believer alike worship. Sometimes even believers worship false gods instead of the true God. I mean, that's our ever-present struggle, right? When we fail to obey God, it's because we're worshiping a false god. And so because everybody worships, learn to see in yourself, first and foremost, the false gods that you're tempted to worship and serve, You know, what are maybe some of the common reasons that you, of your own volition, might choose to miss corporate worship? I'm not talking about things outside of your control or works of mercy, like being an ER doctor. I'm talking about the reasons you choose to miss church and worship. You know, what kept you out so late on Saturday night that you slept through the service? Or what was scheduled on Sunday that you couldn't say, sorry, I'm not free then, I worship at that time. Those types of things probably clue you into what false gods you're tempted to worship. The false god of entertainment, the false god of work and success, the false god of leisure, you name it. And look, your whole life can worship God, but the weekly gathering of God's people is so easy. And so when you're missing it, that's a diagnostic. Why am I missing it? What am I worshiping instead And so, first look at yourself when you're tempted to worship false gods, but also in the lives of people you know who don't believe in the true God. They're also worshiping. What are they worshiping? You know, they worship. And if you're interested in helping them come to know the true God, try and understand what it is that they worship and why they worship it. You know? Because from there, you can point out, hey, You worship this thing. You pursue this thing above all else. You know, work or romance or money or traveling or video games or whatever. You pursue this thing because you believe it will give you that. Justice or hope or love or whatever. Meaning, significance. But actually, this thing you're pursuing undermines that. And it destroys you while it's at it the God I believe in, Jesus, he actually can provide that thing that you're looking for. And he does it without destroying you. In fact, my God let himself be destroyed so that he could have you and give you everything you're looking for. Whatever it is that you're actually looking for, that false God can't give it to you, but this God, Jesus, he can. And look, Having an eye for this kind of conversation takes work. It takes thinking. It takes praying. It takes journaling. It takes listening. It takes ongoing relationship and dialogue, but it would be worth it, right? To see our loved ones stop sacrificing themselves on the altars of false gods. To see our friends and family and neighbors start to be able to know their right hand from their left to see them stop being so harassed and helpless to see them live no longer like a sheep without a shepherd to see them instead live as sheep who have come under the care of the great shepherd jesus it would be worth it right to for them to see jesus as the one who loves them and died for their sins but who god raised from the dead and who will raise them too The unknown God is knowable, and he loves you. Don't you want to make known this God? Everybody worships. Don't you want to see them worship the true God? Don't you want to see them worship the resurrected Christ? That takes us to our final point, the resurrection. After telling the people in Athens that the times of ignorance were over and that they should repent, Paul continues in verse 31 because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. There is a day in the future that God has hand-selected. We don't know when that day is, but God does. He's fixed it. And on that day, he will judge the world in righteousness. The judgment that comes out that day will be perfectly righteous, and it will be given by a man, whom God has appointed, Jesus. And of course, in order for there to be a judgment on that day, people have to stand before the judge. And in order to stand before the judge, you must be raised from the dead, which can be hard to believe. But God has given us assurance that there will, in fact, be a resurrection at the end of the age. And how does he give us that assurance? By raising Jesus from the dead during this age. Jesus went through death and resurrection first 2,000 years ago, and that's how we can be assured that even though we may die well before the fixed day, at the end of the age, we will be raised. We also will go through death and resurrection just like Jesus. Now, as soon as Paul mentions the resurrection, as soon as he mentions that God raised Jesus from the dead, some listening to him disrupt Paul's speech. Verse 32 says, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. You know, some commentators actually think that we don't have a full accounting of what Paul intended to say because he was interrupted and mocked when he mentioned the resurrection of Jesus. It seems like maybe there was a climax or conclusion that he was heading toward, but he never gets to it because as soon as they hear him mention the resurrection, some start to mock him. And so his speech ends, you know, maybe prematurely. And there were essentially three different types of responses to Paul's speech. Verse 32 again, Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. That's one response, to mock the resurrection, to mock anyone who believes in the resurrection. Some people just reject the resurrection and mock anyone who also does not reject it. That's one type of response that people have. A second response, still from verse 32, But others said, we will hear you again about this. And so maybe they aren't convinced, they haven't accepted the resurrection, but they're also not rejecting it either. They're in process still. They have questions, they have doubts, they have struggles regarding the resurrection, but they're open to learning more or to changing their minds. That's a second response that some have. I I don't believe you yet, but I'm willing to to hear more. We will hear you about this again. And then the third and final response from verses 33 through 34. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Some believe and join Paul. Through Paul's speech, through his finding common ground, and calling out the good in their inclination to religious practices and worship, through his case-making, that they actually know they're looking for God that they haven't found yet, through his quoting the poets and philosophers, through his explanation of what God has done, some belief. We even get a couple names. Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris. By naming people, Luke is essentially saying, this really happened. Go ask Dionysius. Go ask Damaris. They were there that day. They heard Paul and they believed. And those were the three responses to Paul's preaching about the resurrection. Some rejected the message and mocked. Others were not convinced but willing to hear more. And some believed and joined the Christians. And so what can we take away from Paul's preaching of the resurrection? Well, first, I think it's really freeing that there are a variety of different responses to Paul's speech. Some mocked, some wanted to hear more, some believed. And to me, that says that there's no silver bullet to evangelism. There's no silver bullet to outreach. In fact, it's not just that there's no silver bullet, it's that it ultimately, ultimately doesn't depend on the method or skill or knowledge of the one sharing the gospel at all. And look, It's obviously good to try to be wise and persuasive and knowledgeable and loving evangelists for Jesus. But at the end of the day, it's the Holy Spirit working in the heart of the person hearing. And that's freeing, actually. All the people there that day heard the exact same thing. They all heard the message that Paul labored to put together in a winsome and persuasive and loving fashion. And yet there were a variety of responses. Some mocked, some believed, some were willing to hear more later. If that's the kind of response that the Apostle Paul gets, we ought to not be surprised when we experience something similar, and that's freeing. It doesn't depend on you. And look, I know a little bit about this. Every Sunday, I... Get up here and I preach a sermon. I try to point you to Jesus, whether you're a Christian or not. If you're not, then I hope that my words are an instrument to coming to faith. If you are a Christian, then I hope you're convicted of sin and repent. I hope that you're given hope and assurance. I hope that you're sanctified. I hope that you're motivated to good works by grace. I put time and care into writing my sermon. I try to get better. I try to improve. I try to practice what I preach. And all of that to varying degrees of success. But at the end of the day... It's the Holy Spirit working within you. It's not up to me. And that's freeing. I can just preach by faith, and then I trust God and move on after. You know, an older and wiser pastor once uh, told me that when I finish preaching, what I should do is walk over to the trash can, rip up my manuscript, and throw it away. I can't do that now because I preach from an iPad, but the point was to free me from getting overly attached to, to the message I wrote, not to dwell on what I wish I had said instead or what went poorly, or even to dwell on what I thought was good about it. That's to miss the point of preaching it. It's not about me and my words, it's about God. It's about Jesus and what He has done. It's about the Holy Spirit working within you right now, and I can't control that. Same thing goes for you you can't control how God works in other people. Sometimes the best rhetoric returns nothing from its listeners. Sometimes, and I've seen this, the most stumbling, fumbling gospel presentation brings someone to faith. It's not about us. And so my encouragement from that is to, by faith, seek to be winsome, seek to be loving, seek to be persuasive, craft a compelling articulation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but at the end of the day, trust what God does, not in yourself. And be freed by that. Walk by faith and leave the results to God. Not even Paul had a silver bullet method for evangelism, and neither will we. Share the gospel by faith and leave the results to God. One final takeaway. Resurrection is key. You can't avoid it. It comes up all the time in the New Testament. It comes up all the time in the Christian life. And I was actually looking through old sermon outlines, including this sermon, and the word that comes up more than any other in sermon titles and sermon points is resurrection, just like this point right now. You can't avoid the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It comes up over and over again. It's the key to the whole thing. And look, Paul did all sorts of things to prepare his audience, to convince his listeners, to build common ground, to acknowledge what was good in their lives, but he was always going to have to talk about the resurrection of Jesus. It's the central event of the faith. Without the resurrection, you lose the gospel, you lose Christianity. And so Paul was always going to have to talk about the resurrection, and that's where you're going to lose people sometimes. It's just one of those strange things about Christianity, right? It makes us weird. That we believe in it. But we truly do believe a man rose from the dead, and we believe that we will too one day. And we're not gonna apologize for that. We actually take great hope in those facts. We have to admit that to a non believing world around us, that is a bit strange. And so if you get mocked, if you get called a babbler like Paul did, shrug your shoulders. Don't take it personally. You can imagine why they mock. If the resurrection didn't happen, then it is a pretty weird thing to believe and insist that others believe too. But the resurrection did happen. It's our assurance. You were a sinner in need of saving. You didn't know your left hand from your right. You were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. But it would not be enough for him to just die. If he had died and stayed dead, then you would still be in your sins. You would still need saving. But Christ rose from the dead because the debt was paid in full. Death was defeated. Life overflowed out of the grave. And Jesus' resurrection was a promise for you. It was a promise that you also would overflow out of your grave one day. All the miseries of this life will come undone one day. Your tears will be wiped away one day. There won't be any more mourning. There won't be any more crying. There won't be any more pain. There won't be any more death. God will be our God and we will be his people. We will dwell with him and one another in perfect fellowship. You can know that for sure. You can know for sure that that day is coming because Jesus has already resurrected from the dead. His resurrection is God's promise That the day that he is fixed is coming. All the promises of God find their yes and amen in Jesus and his resurrection. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we praise you and thank you for making us your sheep, for being our shepherd. Father, we admit that engaging with an unbelieving world that worships false gods can often be intimidating. It can be angering, but Lord, teach us patience, teach us persuasiveness, teach us to love the world around us. Help us to see your common grace in their lives. Help us to point people pursuing false gods that will never satisfy to you, the God who will satisfy. Lord, we pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit and that your resurrection would daily give us hope and motivate us to good works. We pray this all in your son's name. Amen.